This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 19th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, the historian and broadcaster Alex Van Tunzelman will be here to review the day's papers. Also ahead, Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller will be telling us about the week's stranger news stories. And a bit later on, we'll be hearing from the American film critic Darcy Pake, who translated the Korean film Parasite. Korean has a very different word order than English. Sometimes you have to kind of twist and make it sound slightly unnatural in English, but if the timing is right, then it's worth that slight awkwardness. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. First, here are the headlines. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Friday named Jack Smith a war crimes prosecutor to serve as special counsel to oversee Justice Department's investigations related to Donald Trump, including the former president's handling of sensitive documents and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. A Latam Airlines jet collided with a fire truck on the runway as it was taking off from the airport in Peru's capital, Lima, on Friday, resulting in the death of two firefighters, the carrier said. Peru's health ministry said that 20 passengers were being treated in the clinic and at least two were in serious condition. The airline said no passengers or crew members were killed. A federal judge on Friday sentenced Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes to 11 years and three months in prison for defrauding investors in her now defunct blood testing startup that was once valued at $9 billion. And North Korean leader Kim Jong un pledged to counter US nuclear threats with nuclear weapons as he inspected a test of the country's new intercontinental ballistic missile, state media said today. The leader appeared with his young daughter in public for the first time, confirming long-rumoured reports of her existence. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's have a flick through some of the day's papers now, picking up on some of the stories that we've just been hearing about in the headlines. I'm joined by the historian, broadcaster and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to be here. Uh, Very nice to see you. And last time you were here, you were on your way to Peru. How was it? I was. um, It was absolutely wonderful for the Hay Festival Arequipa. Uh, We had a brilliant time, um, wonderful audiences and and a beautiful part of the world. So uh, a great privilege to be there, really. Absolutely. And I believe a lot of that is now online. People can watch it. Absolutely. Especially if your Spanish is a bit less rusty than mine. I had to brush (laughs) it up a bit while I was there. But I was speaking in English. So if you watch my talks, you understand that. At least. <laughs> uh, let's have a look at the papers. Now, in the headlines, we were talking about this uh, investigator who has been uh, a prosecutor who's been uh, um, put in place by the US Attorney General. Now, he is Jack Smith. He's a war crimes prosecutor. What does the New York Times make of this? Yes, I mean, that sounds very hardcore, doesn't it? I mean, but he is also the former head of the Justice Department's public integrity section, as they point out, which is possibly more what they're going for than the war crimes. Although, to be fair, there is pretty serious um, 
issue. There are pretty serious issues around Trump's um, nuclear documents, of course. So, you know, it could actually kind of, you know, it sort of encroach on that territory. Um, I think really, though, Merrick Garland appointing Jack Smith is deliberately trying to take this out of politics. You know, Smith is not in active politics. He's not, you know, sort of uh, a kind of frontline member of the party or anything now. So, you know, he's he's... What Merrick Garland is trying to do, I think, is, as he's doing throughout, sort of very scrupulously try to ensure that this seems, you know, entirely fair and all of that. I mean, good luck doing that because I think Trump's supporters will take a view on it regardless of how fair it is. Absolutely. I mean, Trump himself has already hit back, hasn't he? Uh, he's said, uh, uh, where are we? Uh, he such an appointment underscores the department's commitment. This is Garland actually saying to yeah. both independence and accountability. But Trump has said that this is a... Uh, 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 it's a witch hunt. Is it, yeah, you know, basically. Uh, and he said, of course, that, um, that, that Biden is corrupt. He said this horrendous abuse of power is the latest in a long series of witch hunts. Right. A long series of witch hunts. Just one witch, though. And if they really are a witch, it's um, <laughs> quite different from a, from a, the witch hunts of legend. Yeah. He says uh, they want to do bad things to the greatest movement in the history of our country, but in particular, bad things to me. And he, the Republicans have said that they will be uh, digging into the Biden family history, too. Yes. The first act um, of, you know, this new Republican-dominated House is uh, to launch an investigation into Hunter Biden. I mean, as if anybody apart from their supporters could care less. I mean, especially when you've got Jared Kushner right there, having accepted potentially a lot of money from the Middle East, all sorts of things. Um, you know, but I mean, this is, it's their obsession. Of course, they'll be pushing it. And I mean, I think the point of these things, like the Hunter Biden um, focus, really is not so much even necessarily to actually achieve anything in that road they couldn't really care about it it's just to muddy the waters the point is to create the impression that they're all as corrupt as each other that every side is bad and all of this and and as long as they can generate that impression then they kind of drive the sort of cynicism against politics that really helps their cause ultimately mm. now trump as we know has announced that he will be standing for the 2024 election uh, and uh, one of the platforms he's hoping to go back on before he does so so he can reach a wider audience is twitter but the question remains will Twitter be around at that point? <laughs> I mean, you know, yes, it might be rather a pyrrhic victory. Well, um, Elon Musk, whose um, tenure as, as owner of Twitter so far has been beset by chaos, uh, is currently running a poll on whether Trump should be allowed back. Certainly when I left the House this morning, it was running at 54 in favour twenty and, uh, you know, 40, God, I can't do the maths, six. Well, 46 against, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is perilously close to the old cursed Brexit ratio of 52-48, isn't it? So, um, so, I mean, it will be interesting to see what comes of that. Um, he... Musk launched this um, kind of directive last week pledging, you know, that all remaining Twitter employees had to sign up to this hardcore regime of effectively working very long hours and all that. And it looks like about a thousand people simply left, just took three months severance rather than sign up for this kind of boot camp Twitter. And it now does appear, I mean, certainly according to the Washington Post, that really it's pretty much in danger of someone just kicking out a plug and the whole thing going down. I mean, because the sort of teams that normally manage, you know, not only the software and the hardware, but actually the kind of, you know, security and these sorts of things are really in trouble. I mean, certainly one thing I've done this week, as a lot of people have, is delete all your DMs. I would strongly advise that everyone do that right now um, because they're not encrypted and anyone who hacks your account will simply be able to see all of your data. And have you joined Mastodon, which is what most people are doing? I have. I mean, you know, and so far it's sort 
sort of seems rather sort of erudite and earnest. I just don't understand it. I mean, I've got a a Mastodon handle, but I can't kind of work it at all. No, I mean, but I think what it shows is that people, what people are trying to do is preserve their networks. And whether Mastodon is the ultimate destination or something else, I do think something else will probably emerge. I mean, Jack Dorsey says he's working on a new version of uh, sort of, you know, Twitter without Elon, which is a hot pitch right now. So, you know, who knows? Maybe Jack Dorsey, who originally created Twitter, will actually ride in to save the day at some point. But I'm sure some sort of alternative will emerge if Musk does manage to sink it. But it is the most extraordinary business story. And I mean, you know, in terms of crashing a value, and as a historian, I'm very concerned about it, because Twitter is actually an incredibly important archive of the last 15 years, not just in terms of world politics, although very much that, but also in terms of just people's opinions, reactions to the pandemic, everything, you know, future historians are going to really need this. So I really do hope that somewhere that archive is preserved. Mm, But as you say, hugely important historically. Uh, Now, something else the historians are going to be poring over, particularly because it's going to keep happening, sadly, is the COVID crisis. Um, Now, the South South China Morning Post uh, has a big piece on how uh, Chinese are coping uh, with the whole zero COVID policy. Yeah, and I mean, not coping at this point. It's a really interesting piece in the South China Morning Post, which, of course, is extremely critical of the Chinese government. Um, And it's, uh, you know, basically on the 11th of November, the Chinese government finally kind of came up with this 20-point plan to loosen somewhat the incredibly strict COVID restrictions that they've had. Um, But nobody seems to really believe it. You've currently got Guangzhou looking like there's potentially a very serious outbreak, what they're calling an exit wave. I mean, what seems to have happened is that while the Chinese have been incredibly strict um, about, you know, having lockdowns and isolation and all of this with outbreaks of COVID, as we saw in Shanghai... um, what they haven't really kept up with is a vaccination programme. So, for instance, if you look at elderly people over 80, only 40% of them have been vaccinated. You know, they really haven't. And the problem is, at some point, you've got to loosen controls. And if you haven't vaccinated, there's going to be a really, really big problem. So, we've, according to the South China Morning Post, you've got ordinary people stockpiling medical supplies, but also stockpiling things like water. So, that's really a big fear that they are going to be potentially just boarded up in their own homes. Um, and in some cases, people even buying oxygen machines for themselves. Extraordinary. And then we were reporting earlier this week about the uh, protests, the demonstrations going on in Guangzhou, uh, mostly from migrant worker communities. So these are people who really have no option to work at home, who are very poorly paid, who live in cramped conditions uh, and can just see that it's, you know, it's going to be appalling for them. It's incredibly dangerous. I mean, and these are sort of the problems with, you know, I think it's very hard still to know what was the right policy in the face of COVID? You know, was it kind of going for full zero COVID? Was it incredible strictness? Was it more looseness? It will probably take kind of 10 or 15 years before we can fairly assess which countries had the best approach and which really failed. And it's very, very hard to know. But certainly at the moment, this looks like a really serious flashpoint for Mm. China. Let's turn to football now, except can we do it without actually talking about football? (laughs) Oh, I hope so, because I know nothing. (laughs) This is Qatar, of course, where the World Cup is taking place. uh, And uh, uh, one of the major sponsors, an alcohol company, is uh, (laughs) in line for for a, a bit of a problem here. Tell us more. I mean, I'm sorry, I can't resist this just being incredibly funny and really predictable that basically with a couple of days to go before the World Cup kicks off in Qatar, which of course has been incredibly controversial for all sorts of reasons, you know, the kind of the slavery involved in building it, the death tolls of migrant workers building these stadiums and all of this sort of stuff. Suddenly, a couple of days before, uh, Qatar has decided to ban booze. 
at the football tournaments. So Budweiser is a major sponsor of FIFA. Some of FIFA's other partners also apparently very upset. Um, Budweiser actually, going back to Twitter, they their official account tweeted and then rather quickly deleted, well, this is awkward, um, <laughs> which indeed it would be. So apparently you can still have your Budweiser, that is the only alcohol you can get uh, at the World Cup, but only if you have a £20,000 private hospitality box. Um, that's per match. Uh, or if in certain fan areas, you will be able to get 500 millilitres of Budweiser for £12. Good heavens. I mean, this surely has got to be a huge problem for, for, for Budweiser. They've given so much money into I this. Mean, it's about a 30-year partnership with FIFA and it's worth £63 million, this contract. I mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we see legal action coming out of this. Um, and in terms of all of the other problems, I know that David Beckham obviously is an ambassador for this. He's being urged by many people to step down. And, and this is around the idea of, of uh, homosexuality being illegal in Qatar. In fact, some some deaths taking place around that. I mean, we say it's controversial. It's so much more than that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, murder, huge, serious human rights abuses. I mean, uh, and why was this decision made? I mean, even, even the head of FIFA says, looking back, it was probably a mistake. I mean, I mean, clearly it was a mistake. And I mean, you know, all of those things you've mentioned and also climate change, the idea of holding all of this in a, in a climate where it's just completely impossible to play football and you have to have sort of air-conditioned stadiums and this sort of thing. I mean, the whole thing is obviously a disaster. And of course, before then we had FIFA picking Russia. So, I mean, really their track record is just astonishing, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, quite honestly, they really need to take a look at their taste. If a friend of yours was dating like that, you'd have words. <laughs> Let's uh, let's go to our final story now, and this is a, another one we've been highlighting in the headlines. Uh, Kim Jong Un. Now, uh, aside from all the uh, kind of saber rattling nuclear rhetoric, it appears that he has revealed his secret daughter. Yes, I mean, you know, I mean, what a totally Kim Jong Un thing to do to reveal her at a missile launch inspection. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, really, Daddy's taking you to see some missiles. <laughs> it's completely weird. So the daughter is thought to be called uh, Kim Chuai. She's thought to be about 12 or 13, but we know so little that these are the sort of details we have. They're all kind of guesswork. I mean, the pictures show him holding hands with a, a younger girl who's wearing a sort of white puffy jacket, um, you know, and it, it's, it's a classic, as I say, father-daughter moment of bonding over some intercontinental ballistic missiles. And I mean, isn't it extraordinary that that seems to be the thing that's exciting the world's press much more than the, the missile launch itself? Well, I think the missile launches are sort of, you know, every five minutes he's doing another one of those, whereas this, and I think what people are thinking is that perhaps it does have a bit of a wider significance. So this isn't just sort of, you know, gossip magazine stuff but actually there has been a lot of speculation about his health he's only 38 I mean he's really quite young um, Kim but he's not been in brilliant health and actually maybe showing family members is sort of a statement about potentially the future of this regime absolutely Alex thank you very much indeed Thank you. That was the historian, broadcaster and screenwriter, Alex von Tunzelman. And it's time now to join our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, for a roundup of the stories that have caught his eye over the past seven days. We learned this week that American democracy may not yet have extricated itself from the... Soup. Soup. For we learned that former US president and uncle, who is the principal reason you're dreading Thanksgiving with the family, Donald Trump, intends to have a third crack at actually winning the popular vote. 
We learned that while Trump's adopted home state of Florida is legendarily abundant with grouchy, orange-hued elderly retirees whose much younger wives resent them, interrupting their golf to expound interminably upon how much better things were in the olden days, only one of them plans on running for president in 2024. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. And we learned therefrom of an exciting enlargement of Trump's trademark phrase. Apparently no longer content with making America merely great again, we learned that Trump is now swinging for glorious as well. And we, for one humorous weekly news wrap, believe that we can see what he is doing here. Interesting. Tell me Let's more. Let's see where this goes. Trump, nothing if not one of history's most energetic grifters, has doubtless apprehended that his previous two runs for the White House have probably shifted as much gear emblazoned with the Make America Great Again acronym MAGA as they're going to. Though certain of his voters from the more remote reaches of America's rural states probably can wear two baseball caps at once, they are an unprofitable minority. Vowing to make America great and glorious again shoehorns another G into the trademark and thereby opens up the lucrative prospect of whole new ranges of MAGA, double G, merch. Indeed, Trump, or heck help us, his heirs, could do this forever by sequentially pledging to make America great, glorious, and grand again, or maggagagaga, then to make America great, glorious, grand, and groovy again, or maggagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagag
Still, we learned that we, by which we mean specifically we, the compilers of this monologue, can look forward to another stretch of the big goose basically writing it for us every week. That said, we learned that certain of Trump's acolytes seemed weirdly determined to assist him in that inadvertent labour, especially those supporting Carrie Lake, defeated Trumpist candidate in Arizona's gubernatorial race. And you said making that clip of people saying gubernatorial was a waste of time. Let's go. Gubernatorial. 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 Yeah. Gubernatorial. Yeah. Gubernatorial. I'll use that, yeah. As soon as possible. Gubernatorial. We learned that a cohort of fans of Governor Non-Elect Lake were not taking it well and had resolved to express their discontent by gathering in meagre numbers outside an election centre in Phoenix and staging a morbidly unimpressive reenactment of the Battle of Jericho for some reason. I want all of you to say a prayer right now. We the people are requesting military step in and redo our election. It was fake and false. It's full, our government is full of corrupt people. Before celebrating their non-victory by ineptly blowing a traditional bugle fashioned from a ram's horn at passing traffic, Traditional bugle fashioned from a ram's horn, right? And then, doubtless, saying to each other, Shofar, so good. They don't ever catch on. Mm -hmm. Not sure if I got it. Just rewrite it. But we did learn, once all the midterm votes had been shaken out, that the Republican Party had won back control of the US House of Representatives, if by the sort of slender margin which historically empowers nihilist dingbats who don't really care about getting anything done but just want attention, so we learned that we're likely to be hearing a great deal more from the re-elected representative of Georgia's 14th district. There's possible satanic worship and maybe that all these scary things that people talk about on what's considered conspiracy sites and conspiracy theories really may be true. It'll be even more hilarious when she's vice president. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much, Andrew. You're listening to Monocle on Saturday. The Monocle Cafe on Chiltern Street in London is open now for indoor drinking and dining, so why not pop in and grab a table? While you're there, be sure to browse our pop-up Monocle shop. And don't forget happy hour, every day from 1600 to 1900. Stop by for a beer, cocktail or a glass of wine. We'd love to see you. And finally, we're going to hear from Darcy Paquet, an American film critic and a subtitle translator who worked on the Oscar-winning Korean film Parasite. He's been speaking to Monocle's Laura Kramer about the success of the Korean film industry and his joy when Parasite won Best Picture at the Oscars. You know, for years, I've seen the Korean film industry kind of grow and all these interesting films that have come out over the years, but it's always been really difficult to have the rest of the world really notice, you know, the things that are going on in Korea. And then to have one film breakthrough, I mean, not only to get a nomination or to uh, receive some of the other Oscars, but to take home Best Picture was just mind-blowing. That was a huge moment. But in general, it seems the Korean film industry has been on a massive roll. It's true. I, I think the quality has been there for a little while, but certainly 
you know, you need a certain amount of momentum in order to reach viewers in other countries and to convince them to give a chance to, uh, you know, works from places that they've never been or they're not familiar with. But Korea has required, acquired a reputation as being a place that is vibrant in terms of its popular culture. You know, certainly, you know, TV dramas have been very successful for many years, especially in Asia, but, you know, it's spreading around the world and they're finding more and more fans. And so with films as well. There have been several other you know, breakthroughs over the years. I mean, years ago there was Old Boy, which, you know, attracted a lot of attention. And I remember seeing Stephen King tweeting about Train to Busan and becoming very excited because it just seemed unreal. In recent years, it's just, it's accelerated. So, you know, Squid Game was just incredible and, and Parasite as well. As a translator, I, I wondered what your thoughts were. I remember when Squid Game first came out, the whole conversation, at least in, you know, a lot of international communities and English-speaking countries especially, was, do you watch Squid Game with the dubbing or the subtitles on? <laughs> I know. It's it's kind of fascinating that people are given the option and that there are a lot of countries in Europe that just kind of prefer dubbing and, you know, it's the standard to watch a dubbed version. and then But on Netflix, it's not really established what the standard is. <laughs> I mean, certainly it's a very different experience, and it affects the translation as well. There was a lot of controversy about the choice of translation for this Korean word, oppa, which literally means older brother, but people use it in a lot of different contexts with people that they're not related to. And in the dubbed version, they used the translation old man. And actually, the reason they did that was just because the O sound, when you're translating dubbed works, you have to make the mouth shape correspond to the original language so that when the actor makes an O with his or her lips, then you need an O. <laughs> and so that's why it's old man. You know, it's not because they thought this was the most accurate or, you know, representative translation for that. Uh, with subtitles, thankfully, we don't have to worry about the shape of the mouth. <laughs> we can. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of restrictions in terms of subtitle translation, but that's one that we don't have to worry about. I would imagine timing is probably a bigger issue because you don't want to give away what something's about to happen. I hate that in subtitles. I know. <laughs> I'm very conscious of that because actually if you're not careful, like, you know, a reaction shot no longer is a reaction shot because the audience is getting the information too late or in the wrong order. And, you know, Korean has a very different word order than English. Uh, so it does make it a challenge. Sometimes you have to kind of twist and make it sound slightly unnatural in English. But if the timing is right, then it's worth that slight awkwardness in order to get the timing of it right. You've also translated the upcoming film Broker, which was a competition at this year's Cannes Film Festival. The director is Japanese. It's a Korean film, but I imagine that maybe added a few extra challenges as you were doing the subtitles. Yeah, I mean, for years I've been a fan of Koreeda. Uh, uh, this is his first time shooting a film in Korea, in Korean. Uh, director Koreeda speaks a little bit of Korean and some English as well. And so there was a lot of translation involved in, in the writing of the screenplay and then translating it into Korean and shooting it in Korean. When the project came to me, initially I was asked to translate the screenplay, and so I did that uh, on my own. And then for the subtitles, because there is a lot that you need to kind of check with the director and to make sure that intent of the director is expressed in the subtitles, we found it more efficient to work by email in this case. There was a, a, an employee at the production company who speaks Korean, English, and Japanese fluently. And so he sat down with the director and explained everything in detail and all the nuance that was in the English. So after a series of back and forth, then we kind of settled on the final translation. But it was a challenge because he's a director who, he makes very emotional films. And, 
you know, you have to kind of pitch it the right way in English and make sure that you don't make it too emotional or non-emotional. You have to pitch it kind of exactly at the level that he's doing in it. As Korean films are being recognized more on the world stage, and there's obviously an awareness of international audiences, are you seeing that the content is also maybe being reshaped more for that? It's a really interesting question because, you know, there was a time when Korean producers and directors just thought of the international market as a a bonus. (laughs) You made the film for the Korean audience, and if it worked internationally, then that was great. It was kind of an unexpected paycheck that you received. Of course, now everyone's very aware of the international potential for Korean cinema. It's an interesting question, though, because if you set out to target global audiences. You know, your concept of the audience is very abstract. Whereas on the other hand, if you make a film that's targeting the Korean audience, I think it's much easier for Korean filmmakers and producers to visualize that audience. And so in a way, I think that specificity helps in creating a a tighter script and a script that has more interest. Even if you're targeting this uh, content at a global market, then uh, it might be best to really keep the Korean audience in mind initially and then just kind of market it as strongly as you can. That was Darcy Pake in conversation with Laura Kramer. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Sarah Nickel. And the programme returns at the same time next weekend. And don't forget to tune in to tomorrow's edition of Monocle on Sunday. That airs at 9am London time. Our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, will be your host for that. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.